and we are cooking. Um, hello, this is episode 11 of the Stephen George podcast, I think, if my maths is up to its GCSE level snuff. Oh, we're um, over the hump, boy, don't you worry. <laughs> the double figures hump. Um, that, was, that was Steve Hussey popping in. Um, I'm George Taylor, as you know. I think and hope by now, um, and we're we're coming at you with another one, uh, another booky one. I think it's going to be Steve. But before we get into the, the kind of meat of it, um, should we do a bit of kind of frothy chat? Yeah, you know things of things are changing as ever. Um, the years moving forward, George, and you have taken yourself as soon as I've got back to the UK. You've taken yourself off to Denmark as planned. For those who listened to our early episodes, they'll know that you've moved there for a significant chunk of the year. So, a man of my word, Steve. I have, I have left. Um, I said I'd leave. And followed through on it. So uh, you've touched down, and how's the first settling in been? Uh, just got back from the bakery. Steve, with a, a bike basket full of pastries. So I'm doing everything, everything properly, as the cliche would expect you to, to believe, I guess. Um, yeah, in, in the thick of it, um, taking a bit of time to kind of establish my, my routine. Um, the, the reason I'm here, kind of long story short, but my girlfriend is doing her, her PhD and is in Copenhagen to work in the Danish archives to work on a, a philosopher who I'm, I may be touching on slightly later, Steve, when we get into the, into the books, but um, she's here for that and has quite a structured existence here. That means I'm sort of cut, <laughs> cut loose and uh, at, my, uh, at the mercy of my own sort of ability to deliver on creating structure and not just going to the bakery every day. So, uh, yeah, I'm wrestling with how to get myself set up, but I'm kind of waiting till she's up and up and working herself, and then I'll, I'll create a bit more structure for myself. But, yeah, bought myself a bike, been to the bakery a lot. Um, yeah, loving it. You're pottering around the streets like a Mr. Toad figure in a, in a tweed jacket and a flat cap, looking... As English as anything, completely standing out from all the sort of, you know, these Danes in black t-shirts, black trousers, and you're there, I imagine, sort of this eccentric Quinton Crisp figure. <laughs> One squat, squat little, little toad on a velocipede, ringing his bell, crumbs trailing in my wake as I go. A pastry, yeah. clutching a pastry. In clutching a pastry, yeah, pastry in one hand. The bike's, what, the bike's oh, yeah. wobbling. The bike's yeah. bowed in the middle, straining. Yeah, spot on. Um, um, six months of that. Do you feel like you're sort of back in the big city? Now you're, you're in the thick of Copenhagen. Does it feel like you're in a bit of bustle or is it? It, it does, actually. Today it, it has. We, um, we're in a, I don't know, the best sort of geography to use it to kind of work as an analogy but if if this were london we're staying in the equivalent of maybe the east london or shoreditch kind of slightly out of the center and today was the first time we went back into the city center proper and yeah i, I felt like i was here properly today whereas the last few days we've kind of been getting getting hunkered and getting our stuff ready and things so it's felt slightly more detached but yeah in in the thick of it now and really looking forward to it it's the first time i've lived in another country for longer than a month. So yeah, really looking forward to making the most of, of this opportunity. Lovely stuff. And, and where am I, you ask? I have returned to my, the bosom of my parental home. <laughs> They're um, not there though. Where, wherever you go, people tend to flee. 
they are gone. Uh, they are still in Los Angeles, and uh, you know, I'm just I'm just back doing my little routine. It's been nice. I, I feel I've got just about got over the jet lag over the last couple of days. Uh, not living on weird vampire hours anymore, which is nice. So um, yeah, I got my little life back, but uh, probably pop away again around May. But for now, I'm keeping hunkered. So. So, where are we today, George? What are we, what are we doing? We're going to talk about books, Steve, as, as is rapidly becoming our want. Um, I thought it'd be nice to talk about what's on our to-read piles, not, you know, not go crazy, but maybe the next, the next couple on our immediate to-read pile is something I find really fascinating. Um, I have a, a sort of a grossly swollen and oversubscribed uh, to read pile that I constantly add to. I'm a, I'm an addict. I can't really pass a bookshop, certainly not a secondhand bookshop without buying something. And I have this sort of Amazon list shopping basket that just grows and grows. And I've, I've got myself to the point where I won't let myself buy a book unless it's already in my Amazon cart, you know? Like rather than being, oh, I'll just buy that because that's new. I'm at least trying to keep myself on rails to some degree. And I think at one point it it hit about 150 to buy on top of the ones I had piled up. But I've I've worked my way through that. But I think my to read pile is literally I literally counted it at 100 books exactly a week ago. Um, so being in Denmark makes it a lot harder to buy English books. Books are super expensive here actually as well. So that, that kind of helps keep me away from it. But something I find really interesting about that is how you curate or draw attention or keep interest in your to read pile, because I have things on it that maybe I bought two or three years ago, clearly in the mood for that book, something must've sparked it. And then when you move away from that original piece of interest, you maybe just lose all interest in picking that book up or often with, I find buying a lot of secondhand books. If the, if the cover doesn't look super sexy, then it really puts me off, you know, like a grubby brown jacket from a book from the eighties. I'll never get round to it. Whereas if it's got a sort of snazzy new penguin modern classics on it or something, I'm, I'm lapping it up. So there's something about finding books that have been on my pile for a long time. And then something happening either in a story or seeing something on TV that sparks my interest back in it. And then I kind of constantly rearrange what I'm going to be reading next. It's a sort of weird addiction, but I'll often, my girlfriend will often walk in and see me just sat in front of my pile of books, like looking at it and just kind of rejigging it. It's, it's a bit tragic, but it's kind of fills up most of my day. Very much judging them by their covers, may I say, as well. Oh, absolutely. And there's, there's a number of really great books that I've... Uh, Debt to Pleasure by John Lanchester, one of my favourite debut novels. Um, purely bought it, didn't know anything about the man, bought it purely on the, on the cover, uh, which was a lovely drawing of some apples. Um, and that's happened a few times and I'll be talking about the covers of the books I've got to read on my pile today as well. Well, who um, could resist the cover with some lovely apples? On it? <laughs> <laughs> like, like Eve. Screaming at you. Yeah. Um, a, uh, unless that's a euphemism, a couple of apples, I don't know. No, there's more, more than two. So <laughs> oh, it's nothing bawdy. Um, yeah, well, this is interesting. And I, I share your... I have this delight and anxiety in picking my next books because I like you have uh, quite an extensive to read library in my house and it's uh, I try these days to go very much kind of instinctual 
instinctive um, in terms of, I know that I, I've sometimes had these very set reading plans and they can very much be a, a source of frustration and annoyance when I think, oh, I've got to read this now because I said I was going to read this book or more of this author, for example. And I find sometimes if I got, if I'm not in the mood for that, or if I get bored with it quickly, it could just basically put me off my reading stride completely. Yeah. So I try, I, I sometimes do have these set programs where it might be say, I have been saying for ages, I want to read uh, Gravity's Rainbow, which is a big 900 page epic. And I have to discipline myself to say, that's what I'm going to read next. Yeah. But, but there's lots of times where, I do find there's something about just volume, just getting through books where if you go on an instinctual level, you're always going for the thing you're excited about. Um, so yeah. Um, That's it. I think a lot of people make that. I think we've touched on this before, but people who are trying to read more. It's, it's so important to make sure you're reading the right thing. And then once you've broken the back of getting in the cycle of reading lots of pages and being engrossed, it makes it so much easier to keep it up. But if you are going, I need to read Great Expectations because I know it's really important, you're not going to enjoy it and it's going to be a slog. Yeah, I've seen lots of people do that with classics and they just end up picking through them for months. Yeah. And don't, don't start with the big classics that come with all this baggage, right? Read something that's a bit frothier and you can, you know, it doesn't have to be drivel, but something that just catches your interest based on something more relevant and build up your kind of tolerance and capacity from there. And then, you know, you wouldn't, the first film you wouldn't watch is wouldn't be Seven Samurai or something really grand. You know, you'd watch something a bit more... I think especially fiction people who don't read fiction much tend to start sometimes at the highest brow literary fiction they they think they should read and it's like you're actually you're biting off a huge amount there starting with Dostoevsky or something yeah that's that's not the way to plunge in you wouldn't plunge into anything else on such a high level so yeah start with something that's actually you're going to get through and enjoy um so Speaking of things people can get for enjoy, uh, maybe people will be inspired by what we're going to read. Do you want to start with what we have read or are reading? Yeah, I was going to talk about the. Well, I just uh, I just mentioned that kind of uh, when we flew out last week, I had a, a check-in suitcase, a carry-on bag, and a little backpack. And uh, my carry-on bag was was just books, Steve. There was the only other thing in the in the bag apart from books was a package of Yorkshire Gold tea bags. Um, so you know, um, not not one for a Kindle. I've not quite come around to that. But I think I, I'm counting now. I brought 26 novels with me, or 26 books with me. Uh, I think seven of them are hardback, and several of them are quite large. So really got my priorities in order. Holy mother! You packed 26 books in a case. Yeah, 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 yeah big, time. big well, time. Also, with given the fact you were going out there for about what eight months. Yeah, I've got... Oh, your clothes for eight months as well? I've got only 15 kilos worth of clothes. I think I had about 22 kilos worth of books, so... Yeah. Lord. Yeah. I mean, fair play to you. You've resisted that Kindle and... So if if I can't talk with authority about this, then no one can, you know? (laughs) Um, Well, 
out of that great hall, what, what are you what are you reading now? One of the chunky hardbacks, Steve. Um, so to, you know, a couple of the couple on the pile I'll talk about today are chunky hardbacks, kind of justifying bringing them out here. I'm kind of making myself read them first, but uh, yeah, I am 125 pages out of 400 into a book that I'm thoroughly enjoying. It's called. Uh, 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret, or I think the proper title is uh, Ma'am Darling or Ma'am Darling. It's by Craig Brown, who's a private eye columnist and general um, sort of wit and raconteur, I guess. But uh, it's fantastic. It's kind of very difficult to categorise. It's biography, but also fictional elements and diary references. And uh, he, he pieces together the life of Princess Margaret, this late Princess Margaret, the sister of Queen Elizabeth in the United Kingdom, um, who was in many ways a kind of a, a bit of a terror, a bit of a socialite, known for withering put-downs. Um, and on the surface, it's just a kind of glib take through her life. But the more you get into the book, it's about nature of history, the nature of truth, how we can um, believe a perspective from someone and not someone else. Uh, it's it's absolutely fantastic. There was a there was a great passage where he he takes it's broken up into these ninety nine pieces. So some of them are a page long, some of them are you know twenty pages long. All these different insights, and I've just read a fantastic chapter that he that is based on one excerpt from a newspaper cutting from say the early seventies. It's very sort of X Y Z. These things happened dot dot dot, and then he spins off on them by telling exactly the same point in 20 different ways so in the form of a haiku in the form of history in the form of anecdote in the form of a news you know yellow newspaper writing and it creates such a great example of how it's so difficult to know what is truth and what is their truth and that kind of like slightly postmodernist take on on the nature of history which i don't necessarily agree with but it's super insightful to see how difficult it is to build a I guess like a uniform understanding of someone or something and talking about someone who is or was at least the darling of the tabloids gives it that extra layer. And uh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. I'm, I like the Royal family, but I'm not a kind of glutton for history about Royals, but it's, it's super insightful. It's a, it's a book I bought for my mother and kind of took before she could read it because it was on a lot of, um, best of the year lists i think at the end of 2017 and um yeah it's it's meeting the standards i was expecting of it it's it's fantastic wow that's quality and what would uh would would people not into the royals find it hard i mean that's a that's a big ask isn't it to get your teeth into that yeah so that's it i i think she's an interesting character with you know if you don't like the royals or not there's enough negative portrayals of her in here that they sort of support that view there's enough positivity to, to support a royalist's take of them but you this could be about the way it's written and the style of it it could be written about a, a courtier in you know uh, marie antoinette's kind of time period it, it's more like a historical analysis of how society portions and understanding of someone in the public eye as much as anything else so the royal aspect of it just adds a kind of veneer of gloss i suppose to the world being covered but yeah it's it's fascinating uh, she also touches on 
too tangentially, but she tu- uh, the author touches on that fantastic scene in the Edward St. Alban books that I know you've read as have I, where Princess Margaret crops up. Um, there's a whole passage breaking that down. So he covers literature, he covers how she's portrayed in novels, how she's portrayed in all sorts of things. It's, it's really very good. Quality. What, what, what would your praise of Princess Margaret be for our international audience? <laughs> Uh, You're not as aware of her as a public figure. Uh, as the Queen's sister, I think the, the Queen has gone down that kind of the role of duty and um, royal obligation, whereas Princess Margaret was a little bit more like a, a good time girl and uh, didn't really have the sort of like Prince Harry is in many ways, if people are more aware of him, doesn't have as much girl. obligation of duty. So like being that kind of slightly less of a role to have to work towards or stay respectful for. I think she just, you know, had had a good time, parted a lot, lived quite a quite a jet set lifestyle, but with a kind of veneer of respectability that um but that's the point of this book. You you never really know. Um yeah, she's a very interesting figure. Yeah, she's got the fun the fun gig of being a royal. I mean, <laughs> exactly, it'd, yeah. It'd be a great time to be Prince Harry, wouldn't it? It certainly um, would. Uh, lovely. Well, shall I move on to what I've I've just finished? Please do. Um, I've gone. Uh, old, bloody old, old uh, eclectic Steve has gone down the <laughs> physics road again, George. Typical. Um, so I've uh, I have these forays into the world of physics. Uh, I don't know why, but I'm always trying to. I, I used to really like the big, broad you know that what what i guess you'd call theoretical physics at school so I, I loved anything that was about the unknowns like the beginning of the universe the big bang the big laws that you know govern our whole solar system and uh the this book is called three laws of nature uh by stephen berry uh a little book on thermodynamics and uh thermodynamics is one of those things that sounds uh, fairly dry and unappealing, but actually it's about everything. I mean, essentially it's about how every, all matter in the entire universe works and the very big underpinnings, the big laws that govern it. Um, you know, so, so the famous first law of thermodynamics is that energy is conserved to basically that, you know, you can't destroy or create more energy than there already is. It only gets transferred into different forms. And it talks about basically how bigger, how big a thing this was when it was sort of developed and how it was actually, de- the, the, the laws of thermodynamics are actually developed by, so, so the second law is the law of entropy. And it's just, it's essentially, you could think of it as a, it's the idea that everything in the universe or all matter tends towards disorder. All systems tends towards disorder. Um, entropy is one of the kind of underpinning um, themes of the, the the very dauntingly large book we mentioned earlier on Gravity's Rainbow it's kind of right. full yeah. of the idea of entropy and that's in many ways another reason why taking on those big books so early on is not a great idea just because there can be so many rich and deep and difficult themes that it's it's better to yeah leave those until you've kind of practiced your reading muscles yeah, very true. And uh, entropy is also a big theme in Isaac Asimov's excellent short story, The Last Question, um, because it's about people who 
no matter how far advanced human civilization gets thousands of years into the future, the one thing they can't do is reverse the law of entropy, which is that eventually the universe is always tending towards disorder. So, you know, it's, um, it's, it's kind of, you know, I guess the, a simple way would be squeezing a tube of toothpaste and all toothpaste coming out. Very difficult process to reverse and many processes are entirely irreversible. Uh, like, you know, if you burn something, you can't make burnt toast unburnt again. Um, and certain things like that. Um, I'm sure some physicists will give me the nuance of those things. But, you know, basically it's that, that every, it, all systems tends towards a kind of disorder eventually. And uh, you can only, you, you, you know, in some circumstances it can be slowed down, but it can't be stopped or reversed. And, uh, yeah, so, it's, but, but it's just fascinating how they, uh, some of these scientists, basically it was more that they, they weren't looking for those universal laws. They were more trying to do things with engines and trying to make them more efficient. And through the actual, you know, some insights in physics come from pure abstract thought and some come from actually practical attempts at things. And then they work back to figuring out these fundamental laws. And, and these were figured out as they were coming up with all these ways to is find this, Is this book the history of how these laws were found or is it just the scientific it, breakdown? It's how, it's, they how they, it's how they were sort of conceptualized and where they came from and, and essentially what they're meant to do. And it's, it's quite short. Um, and it's not, a, it's not a super easy read like any physics book, but it's, um, it's somewhere between a layman and you have to know a little bit about science. But, but I find with these physics books, you don't have to understand... What I've learned is you don't have to understand everything in the book to get a good amount of knowledge out of it. There's many physics books I read where I really, I'm lost on some of the deeper applications of a concept, but getting the broad picture of it and the context and how it came about, even if it's a book on quantum mechanics or relativity and Einstein, you, understanding what it means and its implications and the theory actually gets you a long way. And obviously you're not, you're not going to understand the depths of quantum mechanics because you need to do a PhD and more mm. to do that. But yeah, I, I find them very useful because you start to you start to piece together more and more as you do it. So that was a good good little book. Not easy going though. At times it was, you know, I had to reread things several times, but it was very interesting. Nice, that's great. Um, uh, and I'll tell you what I'm reading next if you want, George, because you. You have recommended it to me. Um, this is a book I've barely just started, but basically it's my next read. And it is a novel because I want to get back to reading more novels again. I, I've done a lot of nonfiction this year so far. Uh, this is Asymmetry by Lisa Halliday. Oh, absolutely uh, good. Oh, yes. I mean, I've only read a little bit, but I'm also already know I'm going to enjoy this a lot. And uh, lots of people have said this was one of the, the scorchers of last year. Um, uh, particularly if you're a fan of the work of Philip Roth, it feels like being a fly on the wall to his his last years. Yeah, so Lisa Halliday had a a fling, a something kind of relationship with the the uh, the great author Philip Roth while he was alive, and um, she was significantly younger than him, I suppose. Um, but this book is is quite about that but also about other things am i right in that it's it's a novel yeah. that's based around that but 
but there's another story in there as well. Yeah, it's a novel split into two halves and then there's a coder at the end that, that does some work with the two. But um, yeah, it's it's fabulous. It's quite a short short novel, it's quite an easy read, but it just really captures a certain moment in time and a certain, like I guess, like cultural milieu in New York that I find really interesting. And I think if you're into that kind of 20th, cent- 20th century literature, you'll, you'll really like it. So yeah, definitely one for you. And I think other, other listeners slash readers would really enjoy it as well. It was one of the best novels of last year. Great. Um, I'm ready to pipe it. Um, what's your next read? My next read, I think, will be Yukio Mishima's Spring Snow. Um, Yukio Mishima, who wrote... Uh, I've, I've read maybe three or four of his novels, The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea uh, and The Temple of the Golden Pavilion. So a very, very prominent Japanese novelist of the early part of last last century. And he, he finished his career with the tetralogy of four novels. This is the first of the four. And he's a super interesting character because he kind of was obsessed with the old Japanese codes of honour and maybe I guess the samurai lifestyle. And he sort of vowed that on the day, the day he finished this tetralogy, he would die. And true, true to his word, uh, finished it up, gave the draft to his publisher or editor or whoever it would be. And then that same day, I think, started a coup or tried to start a coup in Tokyo. Uh, possibly not Tokyo. My facts might be wrong. But anyway, he tried to start a coup in Japan. It, it went belly up and he ended up, um, you know, performing sort of Japanese ritual on a suicide um, that was also a bit bodged, I think. But um, yeah, went out went out with rather a bang. Uh, and he's just super interesting. If you, you Google him, he was an obsessive bodybuilder and uh, uh, yeah, a, a strange, a strange but incredible writer. There's photos of his beheaded head after he died as well. It was a kind of bizarre and very famous incident in Japanese or cultural history, but he was quite obsessed, I think, with winning the Nobel Prize. And when his slightly older than him mentor won it instead, he sort of realized he would never win it. Um, and that had a big, big effect on him. But he writes, he writes beautiful prose, at least the prose in translation I, I find really beautiful, flows amazingly. There's always a kind of hidden darkness that suddenly crops up when you're not expecting it. Um, or there's just a sense of unease or ominousness in his writing that I find really engaging. And I'm, I think the things I've read of his have all been quite short. Maybe a novel's never been more than 200 pages or, or they've been short stories. So to read a series of four novels that are a bit more established and interconnected, I'm really interested to see how he how he works over that longer form and kind of knowing that it's going to be the last thing he writes and the testament to his whole body of work and what he knows he's going to leave behind, I find a really interesting kind of slightly mad creative ambition. So yeah, really looking forward to engaging with it. So did he write, he didn't write many novels then? No, he wrote, he wrote lots of novels, but the ones I've read at least have been shorter. Uh, right. I think the four of these together would be the biggest, longest stretch of continuous writing he's done. Um, yeah, it's funny. I asked someone about him in a, when I was in a bar in Tokyo, and like it seemed that he was quite he was quite a known name by like anyone who reads books in Tokyo. Sort of seems mm. to know who he was. Um, uh, yeah, so I want it be. I wonder what kind of status he has out there um 
Yeah, but uh, and why? Why did he enact a coup? Who was it? Was it a coup against the emperor or the? Yeah, the, the government. I think. I think. I think he wanted to return. I, I don't know anywhere near enough about Japanese history to talk about this with authority. But I think he wanted to return to the more sort of traditional, like pre Second World War state of affairs, and you know, tried to return things to that state. I don't know if he actually thought this would happen. He, I think him and some followers kind of tried to take over a barracks and were expecting to get the soldiers to kind of join with him and then go ahead from there. But it, it didn't, didn't pan out that way. So it all, uh, all ended rather in a rather grisly fashion. That's why writers should never get involved in politics. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Their domain. Couldn't be a more extreme example of it, but yeah, he's a he's a fabulous or was a fabulous writer. I've loved the stuff he, the, of his that I've read so far, so I'm looking forward to this one. Wonderful. Um, shall I give you another? Please do. Um, I am so going off pure instinct again of what I feel like I'm going to read next. Um, I've got a book that's been made into a hit movie, George. You kidding? Um, and it's an interest I've I've danced around a couple of times on this podcast, given my love of prediction and that sort of thing. But it's uh, Michael Lewis's The Big Short, Ooh. Inside the Doomsday Machine, um, which is a subtitle. Um, yeah, so it's... Uh, I, I, I don't know if you've ever read... Have you ever read a Michael Lewis book? I've read Moneyball. I've read, I've read about three or four of them, but I've not, I've not read that one. Yeah, so so for those who don't know, Michael Lewis is a um, author who tends to do these uh, researched, you know, but very gripping stories. Uh, he's a nonfiction author. Um, a kind of, I guess, there's a Malcolm Gladwell element to him, but he more tells one sustained. He's more telling one sustained story through the whole thing, and doesn't really do so much a thesis as just kind of this is what you know, this is what happened. Um, and uh, he wrote uh, Flash Boys, uh, which was about trading. He wrote um, Moneyball, obviously, which was about using economics to gain baseball and how certain managers innovated using that. Uh, what was the other very famous one? Oh, no, he did one more recently on on uh, the author of Thinking Fast and Slow, Kahneman and Tversky, who both won the Nobel Prize for uh basically they were the fathers of behavioral psychology and he wrote a book about their their friendship and their insights um which was very good so i found him a super engaging writer he's actually someone i tried to learn from in terms of just his sort of efficient storytelling and the way he he makes anything quite engaging basically he mm-hmm. just he just it, whatever he's telling you about something you don't know about like shorting the housing market sure, yeah. make into a gripping story with all these really interesting different characters in it. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm very keen to read it. I did, I did like the film, the big short. I didn't, I found some bits of it a bit annoying. But Famously I cropped up on our earlier podcast, Steve, about films we, uh, we thought were overrated. Um, yeah, but we didn't use that as one. We didn't say that one was an overrated film, did we? Yeah, we did. Who, what, was that on your list? It was on my list, and after we discussed it for a while, we said that there were certainly parts of it that were particularly patronising and annoying to the viewer. I remember talking about that, about the annoying, patronising bit. So I, don't, I imagine in Michael Lewis's book, um, certain actresses don't pop up in the bath to explain certain topics. 
No, it's just Michael Lewis in the bath. Um, <laughs> much, much better. Um, yeah, so um, I really, I really admire his writing and just what he does with storytelling. So um, I, I am really interested, and obviously, I love, as you know, George. I love counterintuitive thinking and how people fall into biases and kind of traps, which is what a lot of investment is about. Is about uh, the blindness of the herd. So. I'm always interested in why people thought differently in certain key moments uh, and what they knew that others didn't. So, uh, yeah, I kind of want to read a bit more of the actual detail of it. Awesome. Yeah, that would be really good. He's he's a really gripping kind of narrative writer for topics that would otherwise be really quite dry, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think no one could have thought The Big Short would be as exciting as it was. But, um, you know... There's, well, I mean, money, sort of there's money in there. Yeah, they would. It wouldn't have been probably pitched as a film without his particular spin on it, right? I think otherwise it would just be, you know, Financial Times reporting that again would be really dry and wouldn't even seem like there's the potential for a filmatized version of of a financial crash. So I guess his particular way of writing makes it so palatable and kind of engaging that yeah, he creates a film in the way he writes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. He's had, what, four, three or four films made? I think The Blind Side was him. Money Wars him. The guy's a hit factory. Yeah, he is. Absolutely. He's like the, the Grisham of, uh, of finance, I suppose. I mean, Moneyball is an excellent film. Absolutely. And of that. And it's like, that's one of the best films of the last few, like, I don't know when it came out, but uh, it's always, every time it's on, I end up watching it. And uh, yeah, I love that film. Hmm. Lovely. That's a lovely pick. Shall I, uh, shall I fire one back at you? Yeah, pop one over, boy. I'll keep it light, Steve. I'll keep it light with no... Goosebumps. Pro- goosebumps. <laughs> Ruffled. Uh, it's not Goosebumps. It's the Nobel Prize winner Svetlana Alexievich's The Unwomanly Face of War. Um, a book oh, that I have... Is that, is that by J.K. Rowling? Is that... <laughs> children's book it's not unfortunately she is uh she's a belarusian i would say investigative journalist probably doing her a disservice but she writes i as you are as well i'm often fairly skeptical of the way the nobel prize board picks and chooses you know it will be a very underread i don't know poet from a country that writes in a language that doesn't have mass readership anyway so it's always fairly or often fairly obtuse selections but um she's written some incredibly gripping works uh i would say the most affecting non-fiction i've ever read probably uh, a piece called chernobyl prayer which was about the the fallout from chernobyl and an, another text called uh, boys in zinc i know they've been translated with slightly different titles over the last 20 or so years, but that was about the Russian soldiers returning from the Russia-Afghanistan conflict and how it was affect, how they were affected. But she writes all of her books essentially in the same way and she just collects, uh, collects oral testimonies from people and then kind of collates these oral testimonies into different uh, sort of threads of narrative. So she'll talk about, uh, in this, this book specifically, it's about the Russian women who fought in the Second World War uh, and it's a collection of their experiences, their family's experiences, often recollecting it many years after the fact. But um, incredible. It's just such hard-hitting stuff. Um, 
not having started this one yet, but the opening, I guess, 15 pages of the book about Chernobyl was probably the most powerful thing I've ever read. Um, just, wow. yeah, super impactful, raw, very real. She puts you in a circumstance that is, at least to me, so very removed from my own and makes you really feel it in a very visceral way, very human way. Um, yeah, she's a, a fantastic writer. I think she's sort of suffered a lot at the hands of Russian censorship. She was ex expelled from the Russian Pen Foundation, I think, or, you know, or was trying to do a lot for writers' rights and the ability for kind of free press out there and has had a lot of pushback on that front. But yeah, she's a, a fantastic writer and they're, they're not, they're not difficult. They're a hard read in terms of content, but she's not, she's not an obtuse writer and most of it is just the testimony of, you know, real sort of everyday people. So it's very engaging and very accessible work often about quite daunting topics, but um, I would encourage anyone to investigate her stuff. She's, fantastic writer um that's great and what 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 did you were drawn, drawn to her because you'd read just other things and you decided yeah i'd heard a, a few other writers that i like had said she was great i think she won the nobel prize in 16 or 17 16 i think so maybe earlier i'll, uh, I'll consult the page very quickly but she's a. Uh, she's kind of been in the literary press a lot fairly recently so um which kind of caught my eye from that. But the cover of this one is also, it's a great cover. I think she, she's published by Penguin. But um, yeah, she's a great writer. I would encourage anyone to seek her out if you're interested in kind of non-fiction history. 2015, she won the Nobel Prize. Proves me wrong. Um, there you go. 2016, it was Bob Dylan. <laughs> Bob yeah. Dylan. Well, there, there we go. I think this this probably the last credible Nobel Prize winner. Uh, of the last three or four years, let's put it that way. Big words, but not necessarily inaccurate words. No. Um, could you just so this is the unwomanly face of war? This one, yeah. Lovely. That's. Um, I'm going to put her name on the list because I know I'll forget that. Uh, on voices from Chernobyl, I see. Um, yeah, that's one of those things. Chernobyl, things like that, you hear about these things. It's kind of like with the atom bomb on Hiroshima, but until you've seen anything that's actually about the survivors and things from it, you don't you don't really have any context for what the actual no and you know, that, the disaster was like. The opening the opening section of that Alexievich book is is a testimony from a woman who whose husband was part of the cleanup crew who were kind of sent to Chernobyl without being told where they were going, what they were doing, and then were not given anywhere near the level of safety equipment they needed. And uh, he died of radiation poisoning about a week after he was there. And it's about her nursing him through a very, very traumatic process of dying from radiation poisoning and coughing his liver up and sort of choking to death and all this stuff. And but I think they just agreed to get married. And, you know, it's just very, very powerful and just one of many, many thousands of similar testimonies that just get lost in the mix. Um, and I imagine this one would be on, a, this one will be on a much bigger scale because millions and millions of people were affected, obviously in Russia by the Second World War, Chernobyl, I guess, a little bit more kind of isolated. But um, yeah, uh, I guess she's talking to people who are in, in a country that often don't get to be represented as individuals in the same way. So um, yeah, it's amazing that she gives these people a voice and it's yeah, amazing, amazing stuff. Wonderful. Um, uh, all right. Do you want me to move on to my final, my final next book? Hit me. 
Um, so we're going to something a little more personal development with this one. Um, well, it's straight personal development, but it's a book that's been highly, highly recommended to me by someone I met, and it's uh, sold three million copies. And it's a very practical book called Crucial Conversations. Mm. Have you heard of this? No, never. Uh, tools for talking when the stakes are high. So it's it's kind of a um, yeah, it's it's all about uh, communication and basically how to not get caught in the same traps that you get caught in when, you know, George, you're a man in a relationship, so you have probably more use for this book than I do. But um, it's, uh, you know, certain emotional traps you get in with your conversation. Um, it could be anything from talking to a co-worker who behaves offensively or could be giving someone feedback about their behavior, critiquing, um, you know, dealing with a teenager, whatever it is, uh, discussing intimacy issues in your relationship. And basically it kind of teaches you that these conversations, in these conversations, your language matters and the kind of way you tell a story versus tell emotions or if you end up calling names or whatever it is, it's just basically meant to be here, here are the kind of researched ways to have these difficult conversations. Well, and then is it kind of t- like lit- literally pre-prepared sort of ways of starting or following through in a conversation then? It kind of peppers it with many examples. Um, so there's like certain parts about like, you know, how to, well, I'm kind of, I'm kind of thumbing through now. And looking. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I'm, there's parts about like how to tell more persuasive stories or how to, you know, share particular negative emotions, um, how to share what you're feeling without it seeming like you're blaming someone and all things like this. And I, I think these things are, for me, I've found any, any little tidbits I can get on actual dialogue are huge because I think you can run into the same, your brain just basically runs into patterns again and again when you try and have certain conversations and we all have parts that we're really bad at, I think. And, uh, you know, it's like some people are terrible at giving praise. Some people are awful at actually giving genuine, even if they feel it, it's like they don't know how to express what they appreciate in someone's work or Mm -hmm. in what they do. Some people are really bad at just communicating that they're not in a good mood and they have all these kind of, very passive aggressive ways of showing it or they you know in in expressing what they're annoyed about with their partner they sort of talk around the subject and maybe just you know very dismissive so i think the way you structure a conversation um you know is just very important and and like my dad always has this thing where he talks about um he talks about when you're struggling with and at, you know, say uh, you know, say you're at work, you're frustrated. He always said, you know, with a colleague or something. He always says, "Well, your your instinct is like to lash out or to want to express this, like you want to win the argument or whatever it is." But he's he always has this very sobering thing of, "What's the result you actually want from the conversation? What do you want to happen after this? Not how do you want to feel and do you want to feel like you said your piece to them." It's like, if your result is just, I don't want to be working with this person anymore, 
well, that's fine. That's fine then. We, you can have ways of making that happen that don't need you to make a massive stink of it and create a whole set of problems that don't have to exist. You can just find ways to communicate that to your boss or whatever and talk in a certain way that's just like, this person's frustrating to work with and here's why. And so, yeah, so I, I think it's just looking at your, your, as Daniel Kahneman would call them, your system one instinct and yeah. substituting it for a more rational system two instinct of what's the result I want, how can I communicate this and uh, do it in a way that doesn't immediately get someone's back up or promote their kind of scorpion retaliation mentality. Um, Very Machiavellian. Oh, well, it's kind of the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think conversations are just just enormous. Just the way you approach a conversation, I find, affect, can affect everything. Just Just the way you choose... It's like with your parents, the language you choose can be so different in how it affects someone. Do you, do you know what I mean? If you just have a slightly different approach. Oh, well, like obviously, right? Every, almost every different person you have a relationship with, you have a kind of different way of talking. You wouldn't talk in the same way to achieve the same outcome with almost yeah. any, anyone, really. Um, yeah. But yeah, having those kind of universal approaches to dealing with I guess universal issues like workplace confrontations and things is a, is a really useful thing to have for sure. Yeah. And it's like, even if you said to someone, you know, even if you said to your partner or something, you always do this, like even just putting the always in there, Mm. it create an immediate retaliation of someone then wants to win. Right. And they're like, well, no, I don't. What about the time I did blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like it, it creates these looks. So even just like one, additional piece of language can just or even the you even the you can be really difficult right. as well right because it just makes a person feel very targeted or uh, yeah picked on there's there's often more tactful ways of doing it than that as well yeah um so i'll i'll be giving you little nuggets as i get this through is, that. i guess that's also i guess quite similar to what you do for your work right is um finding the right channels to discuss well yeah that that's why i've been very eager to read this one because i feel it's uh i feel like it's going to give me a ton i think me and matt have both uh got it on our lists because yeah i think it's going to give me a ton of insights and it's a very very beloved communication book so nice i'll share with you a few when we have our little if we have any little tiffs (laughs) sure by the way speaking of language george i've noticed you've called elizabeth a couple of times your girlfriend here we go I, you haven't used the word fiance lately, and because I right, I'm going to I'm going to Google and find a PG Woodhouse quote that uh, neatly sums up the reason why I don't use that word often. If you just bear with me, <laughs> what have I done? Uh, you won't listen to this one, will she? Uh, probably will, but she knows where I stand. Uh, bear with us. So the reason I don't I don't use that word is, uh, and I quote the late great PG Woodhouse. Into the face of the young man who sat on the terrace of the Hotel Magnifique at Cannes, there had crept a look of furtive shame, the shifty, hangdog look which announces that an Englishman is about to speak French. <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel very uncomfortable saying almost any French word, and that's one that I just... I, I, just, I, I, didn't, think, I didn't think that was going to be the reason. I didn't think <laughs> it was some weird Anglophile... <laughs> That's a combination of things. 
it often it just it leads to lots of questions and I you know it's easier to just sort of sweep those under the carpet but I also feel particularly awkward using French sort of Frenchy words yeah but you you've called her your fiance on this podcast I have but it's sort of that was sort of you know just setting the you know making sure it was clear what was going on and then I can slowly sort of wean away from that and just revert to a much easier easier phrase that doesn't come with baggage you're aware that many languages borrow phrases and words from each other. I mean, a lot of English words are used in French, German. Well, well aware of all these things. I was sort of that was my kind of frothy response to why I'm not using it. it. But right. uh, it just it's a word that to me feels quite affected, uh, and I wouldn't normally use it. And that's like, yeah, to me it feels like a, the kind of word I wouldn't normally use. But uh, everyone knows where they stand, so. <laughs> no harm, no foul. I mean, the wedding's happening, guys. <laughs> it's it's still on. I'll just leave our audience to to judge whatever they want to make of that. But no, I mean, good. That's just one. It's one of my favourite Woodhouse quotes, and I thought there was an opportunity to shoehorn shoehorn it into a podcast. No, no fair play. Yeah. Um, uh, do you have another book for us, Chum? <laughs> I do. Uh, I've got two actually, um, which is a little bit cheeky. But the reason is they're both they're both absolute scandy hits. I. I'll start with the shorter of the two because my fiance is studying this guy at the moment and now would be a good time to talk about this, but it's Soren Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling. Um, so another kind of frothy, frothy light read, but I thought if I can't read that in Copenhagen, where can I read it? So um, Kierkegaard is the academic that she studies. I'm not in any way really well versed in what he does and that's, probably his most accessible work so I thought yeah this would be the place to read that and try and try and get slightly up to speed on what she's doing um so yeah that's that's kind of a throwaway pick it's it's a fairly short not a throwaway text but I just added that because of my location at the moment that's beautiful that you're doing that for your lovely fiance yeah well you see I'm not 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 just a monster no no um well, go on. That's that one, and then I have I have a slightly more well one that I I've been meaning to read for a, a long time, or it's been looming large over me for a long time. It's the final piece of the Karl of Knausgaard series, My Struggle. So Norwegian writer, which you know in Denmark, next best thing. Let's be honest. Um, so I thought you know I'd, I'd tuck into that while I'm here. Uh, it's. It was certainly the heaviest book in my baggage, Steve. It's what, 1,160 pages, hardback. Why not? It was your um, bloody. It was your bloody struggle bringing it over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, for, for those of you who don't know who he is, he's a kind of uh, like real, real autobiographical fiction writer. He writes about sort of the entirety of his life, really, in a very gripping very narrative way, at least at least to my sensibilities. Uh, and this is the culmination of that. It was a massive publishing phenomenon in Norway and the world, really, but particularly in Norway, I think the stats were something like one in one in ten homes owned a copy of it, which is is kind of insane for some very like ostensibly highbrow literary fiction that is more accessible than it. It might sound, but um, he he divulges everything going on in his life. He talks a lot about inter-family relationships that led to court cases and falling out and uh, some 
really kind of interesting like press interactions but I've, I've mentioned him before on the podcasts I think when we were talking about Henry Marsh the brain surgeon because to some degree they both talk about human existence and what it, what it's like to be a person and and memory and all these these many topics and I'm I'm five of the six books in so I need need to finish it I've come this far but I, I find them gripping and for as big a book as it is I don't think it will take me that long to read it because they are they are page-turningly interesting I think um, for a book that's mainly about making coffee and frying up potatoes which is my impression of the Scandinavian experience now but uh, yeah great stuff so I'm I'm going to finish. And lots finish of his sort, lots of his sort of sexual inadequacy with women, I'd say. Yeah, plenty, plenty of that. I think this one. I'm interested in this one because I, th- I think you would agree that the second of them is the most gripping, and that's, that's when he's best one. Yeah, yeah, that's when he's married and a little bit more confident in himself, or at least it's not the sexual inadequacy of I'm a teenager or I'm a young man. It's more like an established father. So. This book, I think a lot of it comes from a similar period in his life. So I'm hoping for some for some similar engagement. Yeah, I've um I've had a enjoyable ride with the books. I've I haven't I, I haven't loved them all. Um I probably found it a bit more of a mixed bag than you have, but mm. um I uh I do admire the sort of scope and ambition of the project. But um yeah, there's there's parts where I'm I don't know if I even think he's likable. I don't know if he's not that he's trying to be likable. But <laughs> no, I, he's certainly I'm, not. I'm not sure how I feel about this person as a whole, but it's uh, it's definitely just a fascinating sort of deep dive into one man's psyche and life. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I, I've I've really gotten into that kind of auto auto fiction's a bit of a horrible phrase, but how do we know what's true what's real what isn't that sort of permeates a few of the books that i've I've picked here i guess and just the different ways that we can present those so yeah what's real about history and what's true seeing that through the lens of fiction i find really really interesting because obviously it comes with the acceptance that you are to some degree being sold a fabrication but then that being presented as truthful yeah it it brings a lot of really interesting prisms or lenses with which we see culture yeah and you can't really tell with him how much is meant to be him telling the exact truth of every event or if it's but then there is that it's that what's the phenomenon called where was it was it barbara streisand she had you know the press were taking photos of where she lived and she didn't want them to so she took an injunction out and that led to more people knowing where it was and it sort of snowballed it's like his uncle took him to court so there must be some truth in it because otherwise he wouldn't have responded you know so like the more the people have said oh you mustn't say that about us the Mm. more you sort of think like well no smoke without fire yeah yeah Um, yeah yeah. in many ways it's very sort of inconsequential stuff it's just one family and they're fairly sort of the average experience of family members die family members are born stuff happens it's not you know there's not these incredibly grand things happening but um Mm. yeah bringing bringing the sort of everyday life to this it's a bit like a sort of a proust kind of project but a lot a lot more accessible i think yeah more proust than forrest gump (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's certainly true um uh all right well i think that's a good little collection for people to chew on read Uh, along with us yeah 
read along. We're, we're thinking of perhaps someone suggested perhaps doing a G- Stephen George Goodreads page. So we'll, we'll, we'll look into that and maybe we'll pop on sort of the books we've mentioned on the podcast. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll look into that. Um, anything you want to add, Sweet? Or That's me done, I think. I'm going to go right. tuck into my pastries. All right, you get you get munching, and uh, I've had some lovely bacon and eggs, George. So I'm happy. Yeah, um, all right, guys, you have a good week, and we will check back in soon. Cheers, guys. Thanks. Bye-bye. Love you. Bye.